7. Tea and the mixture is then poured over the plate or film in such a way that a thin, even coating is made. It is the presence of the gelatin that gives plates a yellowish hue. The sensitive plates are left to dry in dark rooms, and when the coating has become absolutely firm and dry, the plates are packed in boxes and sent forth for sale. Glass plates are heavy and inconvenient to carry, so that celluloid films have almost entirely taken their place, at least for outdoor work. 123. Light and Shade. Let us apply the above process to a real photograph. Suppose we wish to take the photograph of a man sitting in a chair in his library. If the man wore a gray coat, a black tie, and a white collar, these details must be faithfully represented in the photograph. How can the almost innumerable lights and shades be produced on the plate? The white collar would send through the lens the most light to the sensitive plate, hence the silver chloride on the plate would be most changed at the place where the lens formed an image of the collar. The gray coat would not send to the lens so much light as the white collar. Hence the silver chloride would be less affected by the light from the coat than by that from the collar. And at the place where the lens produced an image of the coat the silver chloride would not be changed so much as where the collar images. The light from the face would produce a still different effect. Since the light from the face is stronger than the light from the gray coat. But less than that from a white collar. The face in the image would show less changed silver chloride than the collar. But more than the coat. Because the face is lighter than the coat but not so light as the collar. Finally, the silver chloride would be least affected by the dark tie. The wallpaper in the background would affect the plate according to the brightness of the light which fell directly upon it and which reflected to the camera. When such a plate has been developed and fixed, as described in section 121, we have the so-called negative figure 83. The collar is very dark, the black tie and gray coat white, and the white tidy very dark, the lighter the object such as tidy or collar, the more salt is changed, or, in other words, the greater the portion of the silver salt that is affected, and hence the darker the stain on the plate at that particular spot, the plate shows all gradations of intensity the tidy is dark, the black tie is light, the photograph is true as far as position, form, and expression are concerned, but the actual intensities are just reversed. How this plate can be transformed into a photograph true in every detail will be seen in the following section. 124. The perfect photograph. Bright objects, such as the sky or a white waste, change much of the silver chloride, and hence appear dark on the negative. Dark objects, such as furniture or a black coat, change little of the chloride, and hence appear light on the negative. To obtain a true photograph, the negative is placed on a piece of sensitive photographic paper or paper coated with a silver salt in the same manner as the plate and films. The combination is exposed to the light. The dark portions of the negative will act as obstructions to the passage of light, and but little light will pass through that part of the negative to the photographic paper, and consequently but little of the silver salt on the paper will be changed. On the other hand, the light portion of the negative will allow free and easy passage of the light rays, which will fall upon the photographic paper and will change much more of the silver. Thus it is that dark places in the negative produce light places in the positive or real photograph figure 84, and that light places in the negative produce dark places in the positive, all intermediate grades are likewise represented with their proper gradations of intensity. If properly treated, a negative remains good for years, and will serve for an indefinite number of positives or true photographs. 125. Light and Disease the far-reaching effect which light has upon some inanimate objects, such as photographic films and clothes, 
leads us to inquire into the relation which exists between light and living things. We know from daily observation that plants must have light in order to thrive and grow. A healthy plant brought into a dark room soon loses its vigor and freshness, and becomes yellow and drooping. Plants do not all agree as to the amount of light they require. For some, like the violet and the arbutus, grow best in moderate light, while others, like the willows, need the strong, full beams of the sun. But nearly all common plants, whatever they are, sicken and die if deprived of sunlight for a long time. This is likewise true in the animal world. During long transportation, animals are sometimes necessarily confined in dark cars, with the result that many deaths occur. Even though the car is well aired and ventilated and the food supply good, light and fresh air put color into pale cheeks, just as light and air transform sickly, yellowish plants into hardy green ones. Plenty of fresh air, light, and pure water are the watchwords against disease. In addition to the plants and animals which we see, there are many strange and seen ones floating in the atmosphere around us, lying in the dust of corner and closet, growing in the water we drink and thronging decayed vegetable and animal matter. Everyone knows that mildew and vermin do damage in the home and in the field, but very few understand that, in addition to these visible enemies of man, there are swarms of invisible plants and animals some of which do far more damage, both directly and indirectly, than the seen and familiar enemies. All such very small plants and animals are known as microorganisms. Not all microorganisms are harmful, Some are our friends and are as helpful to us as our cultivated plants and domesticated animals. Among the most important of the microorganisms are bacteria, which include among their number both friend and foe. In the household, bacteria are a fruitful source of trouble, but some of them are distinctly friends. The delicate flavor of butter and the sharp but pleasing taste of cheese are produced by bacteria. On the other hand, bacteria are the cause of many of the most dangerous diseases, such as typhoid fever tuberculosis, influenza, and low grip. By careful observation and experimentation it has been shown conclusively that sunlight rapidly kills bacteria, and that it is only in dampness and darkness that bacteria thrive and multiply. Although sunlight is essential to the growth of most plants and animals, it retards and prevents the growth of bacteria. Dirt and dust exposed to the sunlight lose their living bacteria, while in damp cellars and dark corners the bacteria thrive increasing steadily in number. For this reason our houses should be kept light and airy, blinds should be raised. Even if carpets do fade, it is better that carpets and furniture should fade than that disease-producing bacteria should find a permanent abode within our dwellings. Kitchens and pantries in particular should be thoroughly lighted. Bedclothes, rugs, and clothing should be exposed to the sunlight as frequently as possible. There is no better safeguard against bacterial disease than light. In a sick room sunlight is especially valuable, because it not only kills bacteria, but keeps the air dry, and new bacteria cannot get a start in a dry atmosphere. Chapter XII Color 126 The Rainbow One of the most beautiful and well-known phenomena in nature is the rainbow, and from time immemorial it has been considered Jehovah's signal to mankind that the storm is over and that the sunshine will remain. Practically everyone knows that a rainbow can be seen only when the sun's rays shine upon a mist of tiny drops of water. It is these tiny drops which by their refraction and their scattering of light produce the rainbow in the heavens. The exquisitance of the rainbow can be seen if we look at an object through a prism or chandelier crystal. And a very simple experiment enables us to produce on the wall of a room the exact colors of the rainbow in all their beauty. 127. How to produce rainbow colors. 
the spectrum, if a beam of sunlight is admitted into a dark room through a narrow opening in the shade, and is allowed to fall upon a prism, as shown in figure 86, a beautiful band of colors will appear on the opposite wall of the room. The ray of light which entered the room as ordinary sunlight has not only been refracted and bent from its straight path, but it has been spread out into a band of colors similar to those of the rainbow. Whenever light passes through a prism or lens, it is dispersed or separated into all the colors which it contains, and a band of colors produced in this way is called a spectrum. If we examine such a spectrum we find the following colors in order, each color imperceptibly fading into the next, violet, indigo, blue, green, yellow, orange, red, 128, sunlight or white light. White light or sunlight can be dispersed or separated into the primary colors or rainbow hues, as shown in the preceding section. What seems even more wonderful is that these spectral colors can be recombined so as to make white light. If a prism figure 87 exactly similar to in every way is placed behind in a reversed position, it will undo the dispersion of, bending upward the seven different beams in such a way that they emerge together and produce a white spot on the screen. Thus we see, from two simple experiments, that all the colors of the rainbow may be obtained from white light, and that these colors may be in turn recombined to produce white light. White light is not a simple light, but is composed of all the colors which appear in the rainbow. 129. Color. If a piece of red glass is held in the path of the color beam of light formed as in section 127, all the colors on the wall will disappear except the red, and instead of a beautiful spectrum of all colors there will be seen the red color alone. The red glass does not allow the passage through it of any light except red light, all other colors are absorbed by the red glass and do not reach the eye. Only the red ray passes through the red glass, reaches the eye and produces a sensation of color. If a piece of blue glass is substituted for the red glass, the blue band remains on the wall, while all the other colors disappear. If both blue and red pieces of glass are held in the path of the beam, so that the light must pass through first one and then the other, the entire spectrum disappears and no color remains. The blue glass absorbs the various rays with the exception of the blue ones, and the red glass will not allow these blue rays to pass through it, Hence no light is allowed passage to the eye. An emerald looks green because it freely transmits green, but absorbs the other colors of which ordinary daylight is composed. A diamond appears white because it allows the passage through it of all the various rays. This is likewise true of water and window panes. Stained glass windows owe their charm and beauty to the presence in the glass of various dyes and pigments which absorb in different amounts some colors from white light and transmit others. These pigments or dyes are added to the glass while it is in the molten state, and the beauty of a stained glass window depends largely upon the richness and the delicacy of the pigments used. 130. Reflected Light. Opaque Objects. In section 106 we learn that most objects are visible to us because of the light diffusely reflected from them. A white object, such as a sheet of paper, a whitewashed fence, or a tablecloth, absorbs little of the light which falls upon it but reflects nearly all, thus producing the sensation of white. A red carpet absorbs the light rays incident upon it except the red rays, and these it reflects to the eye. Any substance or object which reflects none of the rays which fall upon it, but absorbs all, appears black, no rays reach the eye, and there is an absence of any color sensation. Coal and tar and soot are good illustrations of objects which absorb all the light which falls upon them. 131. How and why colors change? Matching colors. 
Most women prefer to shop in the morning and early afternoon when the sunlight illuminates shops and factories, and when gas and electricity do not throw their spell over colors. Practically all people know that ribbons and ties, trimmings and dresses, frequently look different at night from what they do in the daytime. It is not safe to match colors by artificial light, cloth which looks red by night may be almost purple by day. Indeed, the color of an object depends upon the color of the light which falls upon it. Strange sights are seen on the 4th of July when variously colored fireworks are blazing. The child with a white blouse appears first red, then blue, then green. According as his powders burn red, blue, or green, the face of the child changes from its normal healthy hue to a brilliant red and then to ghastly shades. Suppose, for example, that a white hat is held at the red end of the spectrum or in any red light. The characteristics of white objects is their ability to reflect all the various rays that fall upon them. Here, however, the only light which falls upon the white hat is red light. Hence the only light which the hat has to reflect is red light and the hat consequently appears red. Similarly, if a white hat is placed in a blue light, it will reflect all the light which falls upon it, namely, blue light, and will appear blue. If a red hat is held in a red light, it is seen in its proper color. If a red hat is held in a blue light, it appears black, it cannot reflect any of the blue light because that is all absorbed and there is no red light to reflect. A child wearing a green frock on Independence Day seems at night to be wearing a black frock. If standing near powders burning with red, blue, or violet light. 132. Pure, simple colors things as they seem. To the eye white light appears a simple, single color. It reveals its compound nature to us only when passed through a prism, when it shows itself to be compounded of an infinite number of colors which Sir Isaac Newton grouped in seven divisions, violet, indigo, blue, green, yellow, orange, and red. We naturally ask ourselves whether these colors which compose white light are themselves in turn compound. To answer that question, let us very carefully insert a second prism in the path of the rays which issue from the first prism carefully barring out the remaining six kinds of rays. If the red light is compound, it will be broken up into its constituent parts and will form a typical spectrum of its own, just as white light did after its passage through a prism. But the red rays pass through the second prism, are refracted, and bent from this course, and no new colors appear. No new spectrum is formed. Evidently a ray of spectrum red is a simple color, not a compound color. If a similar experiment is made with the remaining spectrum rays, the result is always the same, the individual spectrum colors remain simple, pure colors, the individual spectrum colors are groups of simple, pure colors, 133, colors not as they seem compound colors, if one half of a cardboard disc figure 88 is painted green, and the other half violet, and the disc is slipped upon a toy top, and spun rapidly, the rotating disc will appear blue, if red and green are used in the same way instead of green and violet, the rotating disc will appear yellow. A combination of red and yellow will give orange. The colors formed in this way do not appear to the eye different from the spectrum colors, but they are actually very different. The spectrum colors, as we saw in the preceding section, are pure, simple colors, while the colors formed from the rotating disc are in reality compounded of several totally different rays. Although in appearance the resulting colors are pure and simple, if it were not that colors can be compounded, we should be limited in hue and shade to the seven spectral colors, the wealth and beauty of color in nature, art, and commerce would be unknown, the flowers with their thousands of hues would have a poverty of color and dreamed of.
Art would lose its magenta, its lilac, its olive, its lavender, and would have to work its wonders with the spectral colors alone. By compounding various colors in different proportions, new colors can be formed to give freshness and variety. If one-third of the rotating disc is painted blue, and the remainder white, the result is lavender, if fifteen parts of white, four parts of red, and one part of blue are arranged on the disc, the result is lilac. Olive is obtained from a combination of two parts green, one part red, and one part black, and the soft rich shades of brown are all due to different mixtures of black, red, orange, or yellow. 134. The Essential Colors Strange and unexpected facts await us at every turn in science. If the rotating cardboard disc figure 88 is painted one-third red, one-third green, and one-third blue, the resulting color is white. While the mixture of the spectral colors produces white, it is not necessary to have all of the spectral colors in order to obtain white, because a mixture of the following colors alone, red, green, and blue, will give white. Moreover, by the mixture of these three colors in proper proportions, any color of the spectrum, such as yellow or indigo or orange, may be obtained. The three spectral colors, red, green, and blue, are called primary or essential hues, because all known tints of color may be produced by the careful blending of blue, green, and red in the proper proportions. For example, purple is obtained by the blending of red and blue, and orange by the blending of red and yellow. 135. Color Blindness The nerve fibers of the eye which carry the sensation of color to the brain are particularly sensitive to the primary colors red, green, blue. Indeed, all color sensations are produced by the stimulation of three sets of nerves which are sensitive to the primary colors. If one sees purple, it is because the optic nerves sensitive to a red and blue purple equals red plus blue have carried their separate messages to the brain, and the blending of the two distinct messages in the brain has given the sensation of purple. If a red rose is seen, it is because the optic nerves sensitive to a red have been stimulated and have carried the message to the brain. A snowy field stimulates equally all three sets of optic nerves the red, the green, and the blue. Lavender, which is one part blue and three parts white, would stimulate all three sets of nerves, but with a maximum of stimulation for the blue, equal stimulation of the three sets would give the impression of white. A colorblind person has some defect in one or more of the three sets of nerves which carry the color message to the brain. Suppose the nerve fibers responsible for carrying the red are totally defective. If such a person views a yellow flower, he will see it as a green flower. Yellow contains both red and green, and hence both the red and green nerve fibers should be stimulated. But the red nerve fibers are defective and do not respond, the green nerve fibers alone being stimulated and the brain therefore interprets green. A well-known offer gives an amusing incident of a dinner party, that which the host offered stewed tomato for applesauce. What color nerves were defective in the case of the host? In some employments color blindness in an employee would be fatal to many lives. Engineers and pilots govern the direction and speed of trains and boats largely by the colored signals which flash out in the night's darkness or move in the day's bright light and any mistake in the reading of color signals would imperil the lives of travelers. For this reason a rigid test in color is given to all persons seeking such employment, and the ability to match ribbons and yarns of all ordinary hues is an unvarying requirement for efficiency. Chapter XIV Heat and Light A.S. Companions The night has a thousand eyes, and the day but one, yet the light of the bright world dies with the dying Sunday. 136. Most bodies which glow and give out light are hot, 
the stove which glows with a warm red is hot and fiery, smoldering wood is black and lifeless, glowing coals are far hotter than black ones. The stained glass window softens and mellows the bright light of the Sunday but it also shuts out some of the warmth of the sun's rays. The shady side of the street spares our eyes the intense glare of the Sunday but may chill us by the absence of heat. Our illumination, whether it be oil lamp or gas jet or electric light, carries with it heat, indeed, so much heat that we refrain from making a light on a warm summer's night because of the heat which it unavoidably furnishes. 137. Red a warm color. We have seen that heat and light usually go hand in hand. In summer we lower the shades and close the blinds in order to keep the house cool. Because the exclusion of light means the exclusion of some heat, in winter we open the blinds and raise the shades in order that the sun may stream into the room and flood it with light and warmth. The heat of the sun and the light of the sun seem boon companions. We can show that when light passes through a prism and is refracted, forming a spectrum, as in section 127, it is accompanied by heat. If we hold a sensitive thermometer in the violet end of the spectrum so that the violet rays fall upon the bulb, the reading of the mercury will be practically the same as when the thermometer is held in any dark part of the room, if, however, the thermometer is slowly moved toward the red end of the spectrum, a change occurs and the mercury rises slowly but steadily, showing that heat rays are present at the red end of the spectrum, this agrees with the popular notion, formed independently of science, which calls the reds the warm colors, every one of us associates red with warmth, in the summer red is rarely worn, it looks hot, but in winter red is one of the most pleasing colors because of the sense of warmth and cheer it brings. All light rays are accompanied by a small amount of heat, but the red rays carry the most. What seems perhaps the most unexpected thing, is that the temperature, as indicated by a sensitive thermometer, continues to arise if the thermometer is moved just beyond the red light of the spectrum. There actually seems to be more heat beyond the red than in the red, but if the thermometer is moved too far away, the temperature again falls. Later we shall see what this means. 138. The energy of the sun. It is difficult to tell how much of the energy of the sun is light and how much is heat. But it is easy to determine the combined effect of heat and light. Suppose we allow the sun's rays to fall perpendicularly upon a metal cylinder coated with lamp black and filled with a known quantity of water figure 89. At the expiration of a few hours the temperature of the water will be considerably higher. Lamp black is a good absorber of heat and it is used as a coating in order that all the light rays which fall upon the cylinder may be absorbed and none lost by reflection. Light and heat rays fall upon the lamp black, pass through the cylinder, and heat the water. We know that the red light rays have the largest share toward heating the water, because if the cylinder is surrounded by blue glass which absorbs the red rays and prevents their passage into the water, the temperature of the water begins to fall. That the other light rays have a small share would have been clear from the preceding section. All the energy of the sunshine which falls upon the cylinder, both as heat and as light, is absorbed in the form of heat, and the total amount of this energy can be calculated from the increase in the temperature of the water. The energy which heated the water would have passed onward to the surface of the earth if its path had not been obstructed by the cylinder of water, and we can be sure that the energy which entered the water and changed its temperature would ordinarily have heated an equal area of the earth's surface, and from this. We can calculate the energy falling upon the entire surface of the Earth during any one day. Computations based upon this experiment show that the Earth receives daily from the Sun the equivalent of 341.000.000.000 horsepower an amount inconceivable to the human mind. 
Professor Young gives a striking picture of what this energy of the sun could do. A solid column of ice area code 9300000 miles long and to 14 miles in diameter could be melted in a single second if the sun could concentrate its entire power on the ice. While the amount of energy received daily from the sun by the earth is actually enormous, it is small in comparison with the whole amount given out by the sun to the numerous heavenly bodies which make up the universe. In fact, of the entire outflow of heat and light, the earth receives only one part in 2000 million, and this is a very small portion indeed. 139. How light and heat travel from the sun to us. Astronomers tell us that the sun the chief source of heat and light is area code 9300000 miles away from us, that island so far distant that the fastest express train would require about 176 years to reach the sun. How do heat and light travel through this vast abyss of space? A quiet pool and a pedal will help to make it clear to us. If we throw a pedal into a quiet pool figure 90, waves or ripples form then spread out in all directions gradually dying out as they become more and more distant from the pedal. It is a strange fact that while we see the ripple moving farther and farther away, the particles of water are themselves not moving outward and away, but are merely bobbing up and down, or are vibrating. If you wish to be sure of this, throw the pedal near a spot where a chip lies quiet on the smooth pond. After the waves form, the chip rides up and down with the water, but does not move outward, if the water itself were moving outward. It would carry the chip with it, but the water has no forward motion, and hence the chip assumes the only motion possessed by the water, that island in up and down motion. Perhaps a more simple illustration is the appearance of a wheat field or a lawn on a windy day, the wind sweeps over the grass, producing in the grass a wave like the water waves of the ocean, but the blades of grass do not move from their accustomed place in the ground, held fast as they are by their roots. If a pebble is thrown into a quiet pool, It creates ripples or waves which spread outward in all directions, but which soon die out, leaving the pool again placid and undisturbed. If now we could quickly withdraw the pedal from the pool, the water would again be disturbed and waves would form. If the pedal were attached to a string so that it could be dropped into the water and withdrawn at regular intervals, the waves would never have a chance to disappear, because there would always be a regularly timed definite disturbance of the water. Learned men tell us that all hot bodies and all luminous bodies are composed of tiny particles, called molecules, which move unceasingly back and forth with great speed. In section 95 we saw that the molecules of all substances move unceasingly, their speed, however, is not so great, nor are their motions so regularly timed as are those of the heat-giving and the light-giving particles. As the particles of the hot and luminous bodies vibrate with great speed and force they violently disturb the medium around them, and produce a series of waves similar to those produced in the water by the pedal. If, however, a pedal is thrown into the water very gently, the disturbance is slight, sometimes too slight to throw the water into a waves, in the same way objects whose molecules are in a state of gentle motion do not produce light. The particles of heat-giving and light-giving bodies are in a state of rapid vibration and thereby disturb the surrounding medium, which transmits or conveys the disturbance to the earth or to other objects by a train of waves. When these waves reach their destination, the sensation of light or heat is produced. We see the water waves, but we can never see with the eye the heat and light waves which roll into us from that far distant source, the sun. We can be sure of them only through their effect on our bodies, and by the visible work they do. 140. How heat and light differ. 
if heat and light are alike due to the regular, rapid motion of the particles of a body, and are similarly conveyed by waves, how is it, then, that heat and light are apparently so different, light and heat differ as much as the short, choppy waves of the ocean and the slow, long swell of the ocean, but not more so, the sailor handles his boat in one way in a choppy sea and in a different way in a rolling sea, for he knows that these two kinds of waves act dissimilarly, the long, slow swell of the ocean would correspond with the longer, slower waves which travel out from the Sunday and which on reaching us are interpreted as heat, the shorter, more frequent waves of the ocean would typify the short, rapid waves which leave the Sunday and which on reaching us are interpreted as light, chapter X the artificial lighting 141, we seldom consider what life would be without our wonderful methods of illumination which turn night into day, and prolong the hours of work and pleasure, yet it was not until the 19th century that the marvelous change was made from the short-lived candle to the more enduring oil lamp, before the coming of the lamp, even in large cities like Paris, the only artificial light to guide the belated traveler at night was the candle required to be kept burning in an occasional window, with the invention of the kerosene lamp came more efficient lighting of home and street, and with the advent of gas and electricity came a light so effective that the hours of business, manufacture, and pleasure could be extended far beyond the setting of the sun. The production of light by candle, oil, and gas will be considered in the following paragraphs, while illumination by electricity will be reserved for a later chapter. 142. The Candle. Candles were originally made by dipping a wick into melting tallow, withdrawing it, allowing the adhered tallow to harden, and repeating the dipping until a satisfactory thickness was obtained. The more modern method consists in pouring a fatty preparation into a mold, at the center of which a wick has been placed. The wick, when lighted, burns for a brief interval with a faint, and certain light, almost immediately. However, the intensity of the light increases and the illumination remains good as long as the candle lasts. The heat of the burning tallow melts more of the tallow near it, and this liquid fat is quickly sucked up into the burning wick. The heat of the flame is sufficient to change most of this liquid into a G.